would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Lord, our God, as we come now to your word, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of it, the hearing of it. We ask you to grant us understanding, and you would give us a will to put these things into action. In Jesus' name, amen. Book of Ephesians. Since I was gone last week, let me just do a little bit of review. As I read, I'm going to start from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll read um, through, through verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of your purchased, of the purchased possession, to the praise of of his glory. Now just by way of review, I'm going to be preaching on verses 11 through 14, but just by way of review, what Paul is basically doing, and this brings us to the end of that one long sentence I've told you about. Verses 3 through 14 are one enormous sentence in the original Greek. Um, Thankfully, our English translators have provided us with a few commas and a few periods so that we can catch our breath as we read it. But Paul is basically here overwhelmed with a sense of God's sovereignty and his goodness and his grace. He is overwhelmed. And you might recollect that the passages that we're reading in the book of Acts are leading up to Paul's first Roman imprisonment, which is where Paul wrote this epistle in Rome under house arrest. So he had a lot of time to think about things. He wasn't running around. He wasn't being persecuted, although he was under house arrest. So he's overwhelmed with a sense of God's sovereignty. And he is overwhelmed with a sense of God's grace and his wonder. And you can see this as, as the words just roll right out of him. And most, most, most commentators think that that is the reason why it's one long sentence. Have you ever been excited about something and and saw someone that you haven't seen in a while and then just started talking and just the words just just 
just kept coming out. Before you knew it, you couldn't breathe and you had to take a deep breath and start all over again just because you were so excited about whatever you were talking about. That's what's going on in Paul's mind right now. He is so overwhelmed with God's glory that he just can't stop writing. Would that that would be the way we are. That we would live in a constant state of wonder with God's power and his grace and, and his marvelous being, the fact that he exists at all, much less that he would choose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. These very simple truths should cause us to marvel at who he is and to be thankful for what he has done for us. Because we all agree that we do not deserve salvation. But yet, he saves us. How does he save us? In Christ. In him. In Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ because Christ is the savior of the world. The perfect God-man. He lived and breathed as a first century Palestinian Jew. He never broke the law of God. That gave him the right to earn your salvation. Because you couldn't earn it and I can't earn it. He earned it for us. Has anybody ever helped you do something that you couldn't do? Hopefully, yes. Have you ever helped somebody do something that they couldn't do? Hopefully, yes. That's called being a cordial human being. You stop and give somebody a, a jump start or something of that nature. Well, when we think of those things, even a simple thing, somebody helping you get your car started when you're stranded on the road, you, you, you're very thankful when that occurs. How much more thankful then should we be when we think about what Christ has done for us? He has done for us what we are utterly incapable of doing. That is, being accepted by God as holy and blameless. Why can't we be accepted by God as holy and blameless? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, is because we just confessed our sin. We acknowledge that we're sinners. You see, God is holy, holy, holy. And when sinners come into his presence... He has to turn away. Now, you see, the Pharisees in today's gospel reading, they did get some things right. The word Pharisee means a righteous one, a holy one. And they originally started out as, as a, a good group of guys who truly wanted to live a holy life. And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. We read about that in the book of Acts today, in today's uh, epistle reading. He said, I was a Pharisee. I was, I was one of the hardcore Jews of my generation. I was the guy. And now they're accusing me. So something must be amiss here. <clears throat> and he's overwhelmed with this sense that God is holy. And the only way that we can be holy and blameless is if we come to God under Christ's protection, under his high priesthood. That is what this Lord's table in back of me represents. His body and his blood. The necessary means for our salvation. It all points to him. All of those Old Testament sacrifices, all of the confessions of sin that any of us will ever utter, they are only accepted because of who Christ is. 
utterly dependent upon him. You can't create oxygen, can you? I mean, if you want, can you make more oxygen? Now, you can go and buy oxygen tanks. You can get them prescribed to you. You can buy the mass, you know, if you need it. But can you make oxygen? Do you have that power? Do you have that capability? No. You're dependent upon, and I'm dependent upon, God for the very air that we breathe. And we know that we breathe things that don't help us. You know, pollution and things like that. It's the oxygen that our body wants. It's the oxygen that our body takes and it smells what's not there. Now, if you're dependent upon God for every breath, then how much more, again, are we dependent upon Him for our salvation? That's what this whole section is about. It's about Paul being overwhelmed by the awe of God's power and being utterly thankful for what he has done for him personally. But Paul doesn't talk about that, does he? He's always writing in the plural. He's always writing about the church. The theme of the book of Ephesians is basically that Christ is supreme and that he is the supreme ruler and king of the church. And when we think of Christ that way, we can't help but be overwhelmed. Because then he starts to become less of our best friend, our best buddy, our helper in the sky, as he is this awesome king. This morning's Psalter reading talked about God making desolation of the wicked eventually. That will occur. It obviously hasn't happened yet because the world throughout history and today are filled with wicked men and women who are on various thrones, so to speak, whether they're elected or not. They're everywhere. Not all of them are as bad as others, but they are there. There will come a day, according to that psalm, when God will demand a reckoning from those who are in power. And who do you think is the one that they're going to give an account to? Jesus Christ, when he returns, he will lay waste to kingdoms. He will break them with what lies a rod of iron. He will smash them into pieces. That's what it's all about. Now, he's been kind to you. He's been kind to his church, which means he's not going to break you into pieces. It's rather reverse. You come into this world smashed. I come into this world smashed. Our parents that gave us birth were smashed. And then as time goes by, some of us get more smashed up than others, correct? That's, that's the truth. Just get shattered by life. We shatter others. We run ourselves into a wall. Then we play Humpty Dumpty, put ourselves together again and... Rewind and do it one more time. Well, what God is doing with you in Christ is not smashing you into pieces, but rather making you whole once again. Giving you the opportunity to be who you truly can be and hopefully who you truly want to be rather than just accepting who we are. Paul understood that. 
Now this process does involve what seems to be God breaking us. We often feel as if God has placed us on the rack, do we not? You know, in case you don't know, the rack was that medieval torture device. It stretch your body. You ever feel like God's just got you and he's just stretching you north, south, east, and west? I've been there. He's not really doing that. What he's doing is he's trying to get our attention so that we put to death, by the power of the Spirit, our lawless deeds. You see, what we think will bring us satisfaction, what we think will bring us power, what we think will bring us happiness, those things don't work. They'll work for a little while, but then you have to move on to something else, and then something else, and then something else. It is only God who can satisfy our deepest needs and our deepest longings. And each of us has different things in our lives that prevent us from realizing that. And when we do realize it, we come to these passages in Ephesians and we should be stunned that he even bothers to think about us. This is a God who, from the, before the foundation of the world, predestined his people to be holy and blameless in his sight. Listen, if you are here today, it's not because your alarm clock went off. It's not because you thought, wow, I really want to partake of the Lord's Supper. Or, oh, Pastor Bones back from vacation. It's because God wants you to be here. He wants you to hear this exact message. And what's unique about it is each of us needs to hear the same thing, but usually for very different reasons. Even though all the reasons fall under the same kind of categories. Troubles. Troubles, triumphs, joys, and struggles. We all have them just at different stages in our life. Some of you are facing struggles that others have never met and will never even have to face. Why does it work out that way? God doesn't tell us. And just as a little side note, you've probably heard that, that, um, that lie. It's not a truism, it's a lie. That God will never give you more than you can bear. Have you ever heard that one? God will never give you more than you can bear, brother. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Listen, he gives you more than you, more than you can bear all the time so that you will turn to him. That little cliche is actually a misquoting of something found in the book of Corinthians where Paul tells us, that God will not let us suffer temptation to the point that we cannot resist it, but that he will make an escape for us every single time. You see, every time you sin, it's because you didn't resist it. It's because at that split second of time, you didn't want to resist it, and I didn't want to resist it. That's what's so beautiful about this passage in Ephesians. Despite that... Despite all of the things that we say, all of the things we do, God looks upon us with favor in Christ. Now, 
He says he has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Now, starting in verse 11 through verse 14, he starts to talk about something that, that truly is future-oriented, something that we don't have yet, our inheritance. We live in a society where not everybody, but many people seem to think that they are entitled to a great deal of things. And I actually think that that's the way it's been since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. It's just that I wasn't there when that happened, and I didn't live in the 700s or the 1500s. I'm living in the 21st century, the 20th century, so that's our historical context. So it seems to us, at least to me, that many people think that they have rights and no responsibilities, entitlements with no, no need to do any payback. I saw a funny meme on the internet this week um, talking about the idea that you know, college education should be absolutely and utterly free for everybody. It'd be great. It says something to this effect. So you think your college education should be free? And then underneath, you know how those memes work. Tell me, how, how, did, how did you handle that free high school education you were given? In other words, it's kind of funny. You know, we are given public school, right? You can go to school. You don't have to pay for it. Somebody does. But you don't pay tuition to go to public school. How many people took advantage? Anybody here want to say they took full advantage of their high school years? Full advantage. Not me. Some more than others. But they think that they're entitled to it. I'm reminded of a, something happened when I was like 15 or 16. I was living with my aunt and uncle, my uncle Kenny, um, who I laid to rest a few years ago, who was like a father to me. He's my best man at my wedding. I can't remember the exact nature of the conversation because I was 15 or 16 at the time and it was a long time ago. But he was, he was getting into a heated discussion with like a, somebody who was offering him some type of service. And the only reason I remember the conversation is because of what my Uncle Kenny said to the guy. The guy, in the middle of their disagreement, and they weren't screaming at each other, but they were definitely not on the same side of this issue. And the guy said to my uncle, and this is when I started to pay real attention, he said, you know, I went to college for four years to learn to do this. I thought, oh, this is going to get very interesting now. And my uncle says, well, that's just grand. He says, I've been climbing in and out of boilers for 35 to learn mine. And afterwards, I got an earful. I said, you see, that guy thinks that the world owes him a living because he went to school for four years. And then I'm sure he read me the riot act on a number of things that I had done. When you get an inheritance, it is an entitlement. Someone bequeaths something to you. By definition, you can't earn it, right? Now we know how it works in the real world. Hmm? Parents play favorites. They say, ah, oh, if you do this, you'll get this when I'm gone. If you don't do this, you won't get this when I'm gone. I'll change things. I'll call the lawyers, etc., etc., etc. One sibling shows up at the house first and takes stuff that you thought was going to be yours when the parent dies. 
You're not guaranteed an inheritance in this world, are you? Even very, very rich people sometimes do not live their children anything. That's their choice. People say they're going to give you something, and then they don't. They change the will. They change the trust. God doesn't do that. And these words that Paul writes to us are so comforting. In him we have obtained an inheritance. It's written in the past tense, and it's written in passive. We didn't earn it. We've been given this inheritance. We already have it, but we don't have full possession of it. Because we're being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul is constantly going back to this understanding that God works all things, how? According to the counsel of his will. That counsel of his will is very important for us to understand because we, uh, God does not consult us when he ordains things. Have you ever had anybody make a decision for you that you deserve to have input on? That's not fun, is it? Parents do that to their children all the time. But guess what? Um, that's the way it's supposed to be. But when someone makes a decision for you in your name and you didn't have any input for it, you get righteously upset about that. Well, listen to me very carefully because we forget this very often. God doesn't consult you when he lays out the universe. Were you there? I'm not going to start singing the, the crucifixion hymn. I'm thinking of the end of the book of Job after Job's been whining you know, Job goes up and down, up and down, and finally God appears to him and says, Hey, come here. Be give an account to me. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the world? It was Job's response. No, no, no. God doesn't consult us. He works all things after the counsel of his will. It is our responsibility to investigate what the counsel of his will is, and then modify our lives accordingly. We've attained this inheritance because, in verse 12, we are among those that who first trusted in Christ that we should be to the praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. There are people, and we all know some of them, who reject the gospel. They will be to the praise of His justice at the end of time. We will be to the praise of His glory and His mercy because we trusted that Christ met God's just demands for us. We have a choice. Be to the praise of His glory or receive the just wages for your sins and become a trophy of His justice. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Paul's very big on hearing the word of truth. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Paul tells us in the book of Romans. 
the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is where we get the, 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 the stuff that we can actually understand. The eternal counsels of God, we cannot grasp. We have to trust them. We have to accept what is revealed. But this, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, what is a seal? A seal is an official stamp, so to speak, that says that something is legal. If it doesn't have the seal, then it's not going to be legal. It's, it's kind of weird. That's um, not weird. Um, in our form of government, if the clerk of session doesn't send the communication to our presbytery's clerk of session, guess what? It doesn't really count. It's not official correspondence. It has to go from clerk to clerk. So, for instance, if, if we get an exception of substance, did something wrong, which we have done in a long time, and I write to Jay Nykirk, now, my administration committee overlooks these things, or else we'd be constantly sending things back and just saying, please, send it to Jay. Because from clerk to clerk is like a seal of approval. It's the stamp that it's official. Pastor to clerk doesn't count. Clerk to clerk counts. Because the clerk is writing on behalf of the session. Now the stamp of approval that God gives us after we believe is, is, the, is His Holy Spirit. If you're a believer right now, the Holy Spirit is living and burning within you. If you can understand anything of the gospel, it's because the Holy Spirit has made it known to you. If you believe, it's because the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and made you alive. Gave you a new heart. If you notice those words in that confession of sin that we use from David, David doesn't ask for a new heart. He asks for a clean heart. Because David was already saved. And the prophecy of the Holy Spirit, you know, giving us life was given to Ezekiel. David understood that before Ezekiel was born. David doesn't ask for a new heart. He already had one. He doesn't ask for a new spirit. He asks for a right spirit. Once you're born again, you cannot be born another time. But we do need to continually ask God for forgiveness. Now, when people break their promises in the legal world and revoke the trust that has been given to them, or revoke the will that they promised to you, or revoke the inheritance that you thought was yours, they're just acting according to human nature. God doesn't do things that way. When God makes a promise, it is done. And here it is. You see, He gives us the Holy Spirit because of verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's us, again, to the praise of His glory. You see, the Holy Spirit, listen to me carefully. Holy Spirit is, and I'm not being glib about this, He is the down payment on what you're going to receive in the future. And the purpose of this verse is to make us realize that what's coming ahead 
is a whole lot better than what we have now. Part of the inheritance that is ours is a brand spanking new body. Free of disease, free of sin in the new heavens and the new earth. That's part of it. The best part of it is the fact that you won't be able to sin. You won't want to sin in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you imagine what that would feel like to not be driven from the inside to do things that you don't really want to do? That would be great. That's part of the inheritance. Are there benefits in this life? Sure, there's benefits. But the full inheritance doesn't happen until Christ returns and he takes his possession back. Remember, two weeks ago we talked about him redeeming us. He purchased us back. We're his. When he returns, he's coming back to reclaim us. And then we get our full inheritance, which is eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And when we think about that, that should place the things of this world and the trinkets that it has to offer us in bold relief against the truth of what God has in store for us. Paul says in another place, you know, mind has not known. You can't imagine what God has prepared for you in the new heavens and the earth. You've never been there. Those lands don't exist yet. When you want to go on vacation, you start looking through the brochures, you say, oh, look at that. Wouldn't, oh, look, oh, I'd like to stay there. Look at that mountain, look at that river, look at that city, whatever you like. You can see where you're going to go. Oh, I'm going to go to Paris. I can go to the Eiffel Tower. I can stand in line for six hours. Just get on an elevator. You don't, you, you've never been to heaven. Nobody's been there. At least nobody is here now. You're still on earth. The new heavens and the new earth are reality, my friends. That's part, that is your inheritance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That inheritance is yours. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for passages like this that remind us that this world really is a passing fancy. And how we long for the new heavens and the new earth where justice and righteousness and sinlessness and perfect joy will be the order of the day forever. Help us to believe, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.